0: Welcome to episode number one of acquiring scale. This is your host, Gabriel Murillo, and today we have Thomas Mail. He is the founder of F International, market-leading mergers and acquisition firm. They focus on selling content, e-commerce, software companies have presence in New York, London, and San Francisco, and have over 50 team members and 94.1 success rate after selling over 750 companies.
1: Hey, Thomas, welcome to the show. Hey, Gabriel. Thanks very much for having me on.
0: Yeah, so I first want to thank you personally and the team. I want to take a minute. I know selling a company is an extremely emotional process, and it was for me last year So, I just want to acknowledge you guys for everything that you guys did for me and the company.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks for for having your faith and working with us.
0: Yeah, so I want to go ahead and just give some context on what you said exactly that you guys do at FE and what do you focus on right
1: now? Sure. So, I think you gave a pretty good introduction. So, just a quick update on the numbers we've now done over 800 deals. We also have an office in New York, which is our, our head office. But in terms of deals, we focus on content, e-commerce, SaaS, like you say. We work with a real range of businesses. So anywhere from, generally speaking, anywhere from about 50,000 valuation up to about 50 million in valuation. We do go a little bit higher. We do go a little bit lower. We do cover a real range of deals. We have, as international and the name suggests, we have clients all over the world. So our sellers are probably based in basically every single country you could you could think of we probably work with someone from there and the same with buyers so we're very diverse in that perspective. A fundamental level the main thing we do is work with founders and owners of businesses in the the online space to help them sell so you've been through the process yourself but that starts with a valuation and then that starts with a bit of consultation around whether or not now is the best time to sell and then we run a pretty in-depth sales process where we learn a lot about your business. We put together sales materials and then we go out to our network of buyers and investors and negotiate a deal with, well, hopefully one buyer and hopefully we get bids from multiple buyers. And then we also facilitate the due diligence, contract, escrow process. And then hopefully from there, the sale gets completed successfully. And much like you're doing after your sale, you can move on to something new and either invest your cash elsewhere or focus on whatever else you're doing next. Yeah, totally.
0: And I think one one of the things with acquisitions, are uh, it's funny that I, you know, two years ago I have no idea about this whole world. And it's it's you know, I've seen it all now where people are extremely Confused sometimes with the whole world of acquisitions because we we tend to hear from Silicon Valley all this multi million dollars acquisitions. So when they hear about internet businesses, it's it's quite different. But do you have any way of describing the different categories in the industry? Is it you know I know the private equities and the investment firms that's typically the larger um, deals. where I know you guys are working with now you know, like you say, $50 million deals, but in the internet space, what do you think are the categories out there?
1: Yeah, I mean, when it comes to buyers, in terms of really broad categories, we break them into three. So you have individuals and partnerships that might be like husband and wife team, that might be mother and daughter team, that might be a couple of brothers. We see all sorts, often, usually that group of families or family members working together to to buy a business and then you the second group are strategic buyers and they generally are operating at all ends of the market from $10,000 deals to $10 billion deals. Um, they are usually established companies already in a space and the, the partners who own in that business or the, the shareholders are doing acquisitions on behalf of that, that business, either under a subsidiary or under the, the main company itself. Uh, And the intention there is it's strategic because they already either know the space the business is in, uh, they have clients in that industry, um, or they know something about the business, which means it's going to be a good fit for them. And then the third group, uh, and this is the one I think most people think their business is going to sell to, but in reality usually doesn't, is private equity and, and funds. You hear all sorts of different kind of seemingly complicated ways of Describing it, but effectively a fund is just any structure where a a buyer has raised money from external investors to, to buy a business. And they might be buying something for a million dollars or they might be buying something for a billion dollars. But private equity really does run the gamut in terms of size. And particularly in this industry, there are more and more funds being created, which are coming more and more down market. Traditionally, private equity doesn't do deals below 50 million. But in this space, we've seen funds that come down to deals at the million dollar level and and even below that. So, there's definitely been some interesting progress in the last, I mean, we've been in business for 10 years. And in that time, we've only seen more and more funds come into the space. So, that's like very broad of the three main categories. And then obviously, within that, you have lots of different groups as well. I mean, we have tens of thousands of active or different levels of active buyers and investors in our network and they they really vary within those different categories
0: yeah and i think another element that i've seen often now in the past year and is that people that are not in this space like you guys been for 10 years they have no clue. Let's say a company that that runs a website or a content site or something like that, they have no clue that they can actually sell their company. They are, or or they have extremely crazy expectations about what their company is worth. I know you guys have different methodologies. There's not one rule for everything, but do you mind sharing or clarifying what should be the real expectation for A business owner I know again it's not a one one set of rules but you
1: have any any suggestions yeah so firstly you've caveated it well there's not really a set of rules but effectively the way we approach valuation and there are lots of different ways to approach valuation but we think our way is the most accurate and I think the 800 deals we've done would 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 agree with us on that um our valuation methodology is based on precedent transactions. So every time we sell a business, in really simple terms, every time we sell a business, we keep all of the data from that deal and we add it to our valuation model that we've built in-house, which pulls in data from every single deal we've done. And then when we're valuing a company, we're pulling in like data from the company we're valuing and comparing it to other companies we've sold in the past and establishing, based on what we've sold before, what we think this business will sell for based on the variables that we have or or don't have. And that obviously becomes, the reason you don't often hear about precedent transactions that often, and you tend to see other methodologies, is that obviously relies on having a lot of data. If you've only sold 10 companies, then your precedent data is not gonna be that useful for any particular company. For us, because we have sold 800, we have a huge amount of data and we can be pretty confident in the, the accuracy of that. So that's, I guess, at a base level and really simple way of how we value businesses. In terms of the multiples themselves, if you look at the different, the three main business models, and, and my, again, some like caveats before we go into it, firstly, these ranges can really vary. There's no hard and fast rule. This applies to deals generally below $20 million as you go above that valuations start to look a little bit different and I generally get quite a lot higher um and and also there's this is only businesses that we take on and actually sell there's lots and lots of businesses that we say no to that we think not necessarily worthless but worth significantly less than the average multiples so g- generally speaking in the the saas space you expect multiples to be anywhere between 4 and 6 times Annual SDE, SDE effectively being your net profit or your EBITDA, not including any discretionary expenses. And in the average business, discretionary expenses are, as an owner, what you pay yourself and what you take out of the business. So that might be you know, your salary, if you take a car allowance, and maybe like medical insurance, those kind of things would be considered discretionary. And then in the, the content and e commerce space, those multiples are similar generally somewhere in the 2.5 to 4 times annual range. So there's some very broad averages, but like I said, it really can vary, can be higher, can be lower than that. But the vast majority of companies you see us representing will fall within that range. The only probable exceptions are if a company is growing very quickly, then often the multiple will be based on extrapolating some recent earnings, particularly in a business where you have a pretty high degree of certainty that that growth is going to be consistent. So for example, in a a SaaS business where you've got recurring subscriptions, assuming they are true recurring monthly subscriptions, (laughs) what the business was doing, uh, say, nine months ago is somewhat irrelevant to what it's doing today. So in that case, you might see us still use a multiple in that kind of four to six range, but that might be based on extrapolating the average of the last three months so there's a a lot to go into it but generally that's what you would expect but like i said they can be there are definitely exceptions that's really just our experience based on the deals we've worked on
0: so if a business is generating two million dollars a year but they are not profitable you guys don't even want to work with those businesses at that stage or
1: we'll we'll always have a conversation um and ultimately it depends I would say generally speaking, no, if it truly is making no money. But because of the nature of what SDE is and how that calculation works, sometimes a business that, um, most businesses on paper for tax purposes look like they make as close to zero profit as possible. And that's normal for any business of any size. So part of the reason why the SDE calculation is used is it takes an adjustment of what you're kind of, making from a tax perspective and shows what the business is really showing. So if you have a business, 2 million revenue, zero profit, but as an owner, you're paying yourself half a million a year, then we probably would take that business on because it's likely that the SDE is at least 500,000. And there may well be some other discretionary expenses in there, which are not relevant. So you're right in saying that we don't take on... Unprofitable businesses, but yes. it's always worth a conversation because there may well be a situation where actually yeah. there are a bunch of expenses that are discretionary and can be taken up.
0: And that, that's something that I also learned with you guys. And I was shocked to understand that process. It, it just came as a surprise to me, which it happens to be a good surprise in, in the terms that the the value of the business was deeply affected by by that in a positive way at the beginning. Of course, when you get to the We like the negotiation that may change, but for those listening, I think it's critical to understand that we're talking here is it's mostly profitable businesses so cash flow generating businesses. And I think Thomas, it will be extremely helpful as well to make a distinction and and clarify the the startup world and all these crazy valuations. I actually went through a couple of startup accelerators. Um, and there is, you know, the 500 startups, there's a Y Combinator. There's all kinds of different startup accelerators. Um, these are companies, either SaaS, SaaS companies or any kind of internet-based business. And they will, you know, start building a, a piece of software. And in a matter of a year two year, they will raise capital from investors. And suddenly they raise, let's say, $600,000 on their seat round. And they start believing now that their business is is worth uh, $10 million. And they keep hearing that and they got theories to prove that. And so I want to hear your thoughts and understanding what's the difference between the startup world and the world that you guys deal with, because I, I tend to hear from that industry or that whole path that they have this delusional idea of their of the value of their business, but it's also because they've been raising capital from investors, and they tend to believe that that's really what their company is worth. But when you go and you work with a broker company like you guys, it's a whole different ball game.
1: Yeah, so I would say there's lots of different factors here, and I, I'm not an expert in the world of venture capital, so I wouldn't want to kind of go too much into detail as to how their terms work. But at a fundamental level, the main difference is. Selling your business outright is completely different from getting investment from someone. Ultimately, if a company is putting in, let's say, $500,000 for 10% of your company as an investment and you're pre revenue or you've just started making revenue, they're not, they do not necessarily currently think your business is worth $5 million. It's probably worth nothing. They're betting on the fact that you can turn that into a $50 million or $100 million or a $500 million company. So it's, Firstly, at like a base level, that's completely different. Whereas if you're selling your company outright, if someone's paying you $5 million for your business, they think your business is worth $5 million today. Or to them, the business is worth $5 million. The other thing to think about is, ultimately, if you're getting investment at a really high multiple, you still have to work for that business. And you're effectively not an employee of your investor, but you have responsibilities to that investor. If you sell your business outright you can go and do what you want yes there'll probably be a short handover period but that's really that's really it from from that perspective and then like i said i'm not an expert in the world of vc into kind of terms that you might get but often when you get investment there's restrictions as to what you can do and what happens if your business doesn't grow so things like liquidation preferences meaning that if you take a, let's say you take a million dollars in investment, and you've given away twenty percent of your company, and you get to the stage where your business is only worth, let's say, one point five million dollars, you might think if you sell it now you get of eighty percent of that, so like one point two million. But in reality, the way liquidation preferences usually work is, the VC or the investor gets all their investment back first and then it's split. So straight away you're down to a baseline of 500K, I like tell them to take away that million, and then you are splitting it. So you only walk away with 400,000, not, not 1.2. So while that's a very simplistic example, the reality is the vast majority of funded companies do not succeed and do not go anywhere. So investors are really speculating your business is going to grow, whereas the acquisition is different. They are not specul- speculating on the future value they are giving you a firm number on what it's worth today but and so that's a like hopefully a pretty good overview, but that's not to say that you can't get similar multiples from an exit as you can raise the investment. I think there's a lot of misleading information out there where people think that kind of every company that gets investment raises at like a a fifty times multiple, and every business that sells only gets say a are four times multiple. The, the reality is as well that the vast majority of businesses that try and raise money never raise money. Whereas for us, if we take a business on 94.1% of the time, we will sell that business. So if you're also looking at it from an odds perspective or just like a statistical perspective, and uh, let's say you have a $10 million business, there's a 94.1% chance. We will get you that. If you're going out there and trying to raise money, there's maybe a a one percent chance you can raise a, a higher number. So there's definitely an element of survivorship bias when people look at kind of investments because yes, you can probably raise a higher multiple, but ultimately you still have to work for that business. You still have to grow it. So fundamentally, that is the 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 difference. And it it really is the same with exits as well. People often hear about. Of our Instagram, the billion dollars cash. Like, yes, that deal did happen a while ago now, but that doesn't necessarily mean that your business is also worth the same. So you've kind of identified one of our biggest challenges as a business, which is really kind of information and kind of sharing the realities of how valuation works. I think as time's gone on, that's become a lot easier because we now have effectively eight hundred people who have successfully been through the process. Trusted us and had a successful outcome at the end. Whereas if you go back, say five years, I don't remember exactly what our cumulative sales was back then. It's probably two hundred or two hundred and fifty. Um, that's way less people that have been through the process, and I guess somewhat normalized it. But once you get to eight hundred, you have a little bit more traction in terms of being able to actually influence the market overall and the what people think or believe in. I think
0: that's exactly why I decided to do this This podcast is just to continue to have this conversation with people that are in the industry. I think the more knowledge and the more collective experiences that, that we gather, uh, the faster that people are educated, the better deals that we will find. And I do remember before deciding to work with you guys, it was one video that I watched on the testimonial, Brian is Brian Cassell, maybe
1: Brian Cassell. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: That video, it's the one that I, I watch and I said, well, I know this guy and it just, it was a trust transfer, right. And I, I wanted to learn more about the process. So the same when I hear you on a podcast or I hear you on a YouTube, you know, and you have a lot of, of, of content out there, Effie. So I, I just wanted to, to thank you for sharing everything that you you've been doing for the past few years and I think the more that we do that in the industry it's 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 going to be very helpful but I wanted to shift gears into chatting about you know we mentioned that this is a very emotional process that it takes a lot of education and information and right now we're going through a crisis that there's a lot of fear there are some other people just focus on opportunities or saying that this is the work the best time to invest and on and on but in the acquisitions world what are your thoughts in terms of Buyers and sellers, is there any recommendation in terms of practical things that they can do to prepare for this? There's some people that are desperate; they're probably not going to be able to work with you guys if they want to sell their business. But what are your thoughts in terms of buyers and sellers for what we're living right now?
1: Yeah, it's it's been an interesting couple of months from our perspective. What we saw at the beginning of March, when I mean, depending on, on where you are in the world, but the majority of kind of developed countries started to either shut down or have travel restrictions and things like that at the beginning of beginning of March. So I'm in San Francisco, and we've been pretty much on lockdown for the whole of a whole of March, and that's just been extended by a, a month as well and I think a lot of other cities are are following along. so most people are in that position. so that meant at the beginning of March there was a lot of uncertainty with buyers and sellers where they just didn't know what was going on. Things were going a little bit slowly. Deals are still happening, but definitely a little bit slower than usual. Now we've got into the, the beginning of April, and I think the exact timings are relevant. I know it's a podcast, and people might be listening in two years' time, but the dates are somewhat important to to mention. I think now people are beginning to accept the the new reality of of what's happening in the world, and people have uh, settled. So we've spoken to a lot of buyers who have just sounds relatively kind of irrelevant when it comes to investments but it really is relevant if you're buying a business which what like you said is a very for a buyer and a seller it's a very long and emotional process well hopefully not that long but it's definitely takes more time than it does buying buying shares of zoom on on your like robin hood account or whatever that might be so a lot of people have their, their kids at home who've not been at school recently because most of the schools are shut down. So that's definitely been disruptive for people. A, a lot of people have had like share portfolios or bonds or whatever it might, might be. They've, they've lost money in the, the public markets. A, a lot of buyers we work with also have stock in the company they, they work for. So maybe that's like Facebook or Uber or Zoom could be all well, Zoom are up, but a lot of other companies that. Are down, so a lot of people from that perspective now have less cash than they did have. We've definitely seen it settle down in the last few weeks, and ultimately in the the maybe not necessarily in the very near short term, but medium and long term, the nature of the industry we're in and the businesses we sell is the vast majority can be run from anywhere in the world. Sometimes they might have a warehouse or a small office. But generally speaking, they they don't and they can be run remotely. So the business model itself culturally will become a lot more normalized and people are now, anybody of almost any generation would understand what it's like to work remotely. Uh, some people won't like it. Some people will like it. So I think a lot of people will, but more people will learn about it than ever before. So there'll be more and more people coming into the space liking the idea of buying a business that can be run kind of from anywhere. And then I think... If you're a, a buyer and you're just thinking about buying a business in general, and let's say you haven't even discovered the industry, traditionally, something like buying a restaurant is probably one of the most popular businesses out there you can buy. But with all the disruption to restaurants that's happening at the moment, maybe a lot of those people are saying, well, actually, I don't, maybe I don't want to buy a restaurant now, but I really like food. So maybe instead they discover our industry and realize you can buy a, say, a food block or a recipe block, which are really popular. we sell a lot of them uh, there's a lot of demand for them, but there's also a lot of a, a lot of supply. so I think there'll be a little bit of a transition from from that perspective as more and more people kind of discover the industry I mean in, in terms of tips, I think the most important thing to do is at least from what what we've seen across the board of all deals is approximately a third of businesses have benefited positively. A third of online businesses benefited positively from the last couple of months of disruption. Um, so like some, for example, like if you have a, an Amazon affiliate website reviewing computer monitors, you're probably doing really well at the moment. So there's quite a few sites that have gone up. Quite a few businesses are actually like relatively flat and haven't really been that affected. And then about a third of businesses overall have declined or seen some sort of drop. So say if you are the owner of a business that has just dropped and declined, I think the most important thing is like not to panic. Realize that, yes, we probably and while I'm not an economist, we probably are going into a recession in many of the developed countries in the world, but that does not mean your business will not recover. So I definitely don't think you should be panic selling or kind of thinking your business is going to continue going down to zero because the vast majority – Yes, they will hurt for a bit, but hopefully they'll pick back up again. And the advantage of most online businesses is they generally have relatively low overheads. So, unlike again, like the the restaurant industry has been particularly hard hit where you have rent, lots of other fixed costs, and just overheads related to running a physical premises. With an online business, most of them can be run relatively lean in times of a downturn. So, yes, you might be losing money or not making any money but at least you're not at the stage where you're defaulting on rent or anything like that which unfortunately a lot of other businesses in the world have had to do so yeah as a seller hang tight as a buyer I mean it's a good opportunity to get into the the industry I think a lot of people over the last 10 years have happily just invested their money in things like S&P 500 index funds because the S and P 500 for the last ten years has mostly just been going up, with not not no risk, but it's just consistently been going up with relatively little expense, relatively little hassle. Whereas what people see now is there will be over little over downturn. There's interest rates are basically zero, so you can't get any cash on savings in the bank. You probably can't generate a return from investing in the public markets, at least in the short term, or if you get lucky. Or if you're an expert, or if you know something that the rest of us don't know, so buying a business becomes quite attractive because, like I said, the vast majority of businesses we represent are still making money, still generating cash flow. And then if you also look at the, the other industry where people tend to invest their money, traditionally it's if it's not stocks, it's real estate. A lot of landlords, again, like unfortunately, really struggling at the moment because kind of tenants can't pay their rent. If you have something like Airbnb. People are not, not traveling, so most of them have like no tenants in there or no short term short term lets happening. So I guess problems for industries like that create opportunities in this industry. So as a buyer, this doesn't necessarily mean you should kind of rush in. I'm not suggesting you invest all of your money in buying a an online business. But I definitely think there'll be people who. Discover the industry in the either coming months or coming years and kind of start to see, well, based on what's happened, they'll realize how much of a, a strong proposition it is to buy a business in this industry. So as a seller, if your business has been affected in the short term, say try not to worry about it, of work on getting it back and fundamentally the market for selling your business in 12 months time and 24 months time. I'm very confident will be stronger than it's ever been, just because there'll be such an influx of new people coming into the industry looking to deploy cash, which otherwise would have been in public stocks or real estate or other investment classes, which have kind of struggled. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And one thought that uh, when you were mentioning this potential interest on buyers and getting into, into the online world, one thing that, when I went through my process and sell my company, I did not want to get any earnouts or any deal that would require, you know, getting payments in months or years. I wanted just all from that was my personal situation. That's what I I decided. But do you envision more of those earnouts? In fact, I was just reading last week uh, a report from one of the marketplace out there that sells online. Businesses as well, and they're were, they're were, they included some of the increasing earnout deals that they close. So is that something that you've seen? I know that for a broker, it's not going to be the best term necessarily. If they go with an earnout, but do you think with this situation, the crisis, is that going to be one of the main things that is going to be happening in in the negotiation or the deal structures? Is that something that you've seen more increase in the past few years as well, or
1: Yeah, it's it's actually a really good question. So traditionally over the years, we don't do a huge number of deals that have earnouts. But one thing to I think a lot of sellers don't necessarily realize this. Often by agreeing to an earnout or having an element of earnout in there, regardless of how much it is, it shows a lot of good faith in the business. It shows good faith from your perspective. And it can also help bypass a lot of concerns that a buyer might have about things that are either unknown such as like what's going to happen in the next few months Um, or things that as a seller you've claimed that are very difficult to verify, such as like the amount of time you're spending on a business or if you are the face of a business, like how much you drive yourself. So one thing that earnouts can be very useful in the short term with any business that's been affected by the kind of current virus issues. And this also works for businesses that have, have grown so see, we've seen a lot of bit, we've seen a business that's tripled it in the last month in terms of revenue. So while that doesn't necessarily mean the valuation has tripled, what the seller wants for the business has definitely increased. So in that case, an earnout can be really useful because a buyer can say, okay, well, I'll pay the original valuation, but then I'll also pay you a percentage of revenue for the next few years uh, based on the new customers you've just acquired in the last month. And assuming they, in this case, it's a SaaS business, assuming they are sticky and they, they stay with the business, then you're going to still generate all of the upside that you would have done from a higher valuation. But they're also protected if all of those clients cancel when everyone goes back to their offices and no longer uses the, the tool that they're providing. And that's an unknown. I mean, you can make arguments on, on both sides. And while our job as the, the broker or the advisor is to kind of, get the best possible deal for the seller, it's also our job to actually successfully complete a deal. And often, kind of being honest about the risks on both sides is really important and a good way to come to a deal. If all we ever do is push the, the positives and we're not very balanced in the approach, then intelligent buyers will just walk away. And then conversely, with businesses that are declining, an and earn out in the short term can be a really good way to still unlock the the value because there's a lot of businesses right now that have been performing well for for years and are fundamentally really good businesses, but due to the coronavirus and like very short term issues, they expect their revenue to be down by say fifty percent for the next three months and then pick back up again. So in that case, an earnout can actually be a really good way to still get a deal done because while the buyer may not want the risk of kind of what's going to happen, is the business going to pick up to where it was before kind of pre-virus and that they might not necessarily want to pay cash for that. They could pay a slightly smaller amount of money in cash and then out the rest of it based on what happens in the next coming months. So that means that a deal can still happen. You don't have to wait until things pick up again in three to six months. And ultimately, the if the business does pick back up again, the seller still effectively gets the same price as they were going to get anyway. The buyer still pays the same, but both parties are happy because they shared in some of that risk. So, while I don't necessarily think long term earnouts will become any more prevalent than they are before, they can be a really good way to get deals done where there are unknowns, whether that's something related to like the market or the industry, or more commonly, the seller, some of the seller claims, which is very difficult to to verify. Because if as a seller, you just insist on, on every single deal getting 100% cash for your business, um, there may be a lot of things that are difficult to verify. So just you'll end up in a stalemate and a deal won't get done. So we do spend a lot of time with sellers up front just to make sure they're, they're serious. Because if you're really stubborn and you're not ever open to any sort of structuring, which might be a completely valid way to get a deal done and over the line then you probably shouldn't be hiring a hiring an advisor you should probably be trying to do it yourself if it's a little bit more more speculative absolutely yeah that makes sense well
0: thomas this has been great i wanted to to thank you again for everything that you guys have done and i've been learning a ton in the past few weeks i'm gonna continue to share what i'm learning from other people as well but any final thoughts or advice in during the crisis and then again we we talk about emotions you have some practical things that you just mentioned on the potential destructures or the approach or the mindset of what's happening in the industry but any any other final thoughts on how to approach acquisitions during the crisis
1: yeah i think i think firstly one thing to realize is that Prices on like public equities, because the majority of businesses are doing fine at the moment, prices have not and valuations have not come down. So, there's a lot of buyers coming in saying, Okay, this business is listed for a million dollars. I want to pay 200,000. So, there's definitely not a distressed asset market. And we definitely don't see that happening. So, as a buyer, I'd say if you're looking for really good bargains and you think you can buy a million dollar business for 200,000, don't waste your time. If you're a seller or a business owner and your business has been affected, you just need to be a little bit <clears throat> patient. And it's difficult for, well, basically every business owner at the moment is disrupted in some way. So it's, it's difficult. Like As a business owner myself, like I get it. I get it's hard and there's a lot going on, but things will pick up again. So don't make any rash decisions when it comes to an exit. Like You may have, there'll be a lot of buyers out there right now who are trying to do Private deals and trying to take advantage of the current situation. But I think if you just kind of stay calm and accept the fact business will pick back up again, unless you're absolutely desperate to sell and your business has declined, then maybe you should just hold it for a little bit longer and wait for things to uh, pick up. Or if you're really in the middle of a sales process and that you've had that happen to you, be open to an earnout and a structure which allows you to get get a deal a deal done. Because there are so many unknowns, no one knows how long this is going to go on for, and it seems to change every single day. So, something like an earnout can be a good way to to hedge that that risk. Um, yeah, so that would be my my overall advice. Depending on what side of the the, the table you're on.
0: Fantastic, Thomas. Thank you so much again. And if you guys want to check out Thomas, I'm going to be adding all the links on the show notes. So F International and link to his social profiles. So thank you, Thomas, again for joining us today. Yeah, thank you very much
1: for having me on.